Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Right, let's uh, let's go to Matthew chapter five for our conclusion of this Bible study on the Beatitudes. And I hope you realize, I think you do, that just because we're done studying it doesn't mean we'd never read it again. Right? The hope is that when we we study these things, it'll uh, help us next time to to look at it in greater depth. And I see Bible study like um, a little bit like painting a coat of paint. That when you paint uh, the first layer, it doesn't uh, always soak in. It leaves lots of bare spots. But the more you go over it, the thicker it is and the more buildup there is. And I think in some ways it's like that. Or maybe you want to picture it like a peanut butter sandwich. The more peanut butter you spread on, the better it is, right? <laughs> so we want to we want to take time to do that. And as always, we don't answer every question that there is. Um, but my hope is that when we... We come again to the Word that will remember some of the things that have been said, and hopefully uh, it'll breed new insight in all of us, because we're all coming with a little bit different lens. Truth is one, but uh, we're all looking at it from a little bit different perspective. So let's read Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. We're not going to dwell on any one uh, beatitude tonight, but the collection here. Okay, I will read. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I timed this a little bit earlier. Anybody remember how long it takes for us to read the Sermon on the Mount? 15, 15 minutes, okay? I timed this earlier today. It took me 58 seconds to read those 12, those 12 verses. And uh, for whatever that's worth, I thought less than a minute, and it could change our whole lives. Think of that. It's kind of uh, amazing. So we were listening just now to Jesus describe the subjects of his kingdom. Uh, His description moves the understanding of the blessed life to a place in the future. So uh, we understand we're blessed now, but the uh, outworkings of that may not be fully realized uh, until the future, a future time. Much of the Old Testament emphasized present blessings, like you obey God and he will bless you Uh, now in a particular way. But what Jesus is saying puts the emphasis on or in another place. 
the emphasis of being blessed is not present circumstances, but in uh, in the present commitment that we have. <coughs> excuse me, with Him, a person committed to Christ stands under God's favor. Do you know that if you're trusting in God and you're in allegiance to Christ right now, you stand under His favor presently. But that doesn't take away all the negative circumstances of living in a fallen world. And so a person committed to Christ stands under the favor, and we're guaranteed well-being even if in the world we face trouble because of our commitment. Uh, Everything that's promised here will eventually come. I'm glad for that. Uh, He turns power out. And so what I mean by that is the way of the kingdom is dependence The way we think of it in our culture is often that we need to be self-reliant. We need to be self-dependent. And, and Jesus, what he does is he turns the power out. We, we depend instead on God's righteousness rather than our own for, uh, for redemption, for our standing before him. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? That we don't come to him saying, God, look how good I am. That's, we come to him saying, uh, Lord, I stand as a beggar before you in terms of righteousness. Okay, And that doesn't mean in any way we shouldn't put effort into living out the righteous life. What it means is that when it comes to our standing before God, it's not dependent upon our righteousness. What does Jeremiah say, and Paul echoes it? Our righteousness are as filthy rags, right? I don't know what you would imagine that, but there's there's different pictures of that, but I'm not going to go there. So uh, our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. And so everything that we have is... Uh, dependent upon him instead of upon ourselves, And so we see that in this passage, there's an advantage of tears over our past sins, of gentleness conquering rather than strength. Righteousness is, instead of being self-generated, is God-generated. Mercy leads to mercy. The seeing of God will not be to those whose hearts multiply gods. Like, you might think that and this was the approach of some of those in the Old Testament. Like, I need to have little gods to cover every base. Okay, and you know that? That in the Old Testament, one of the reasons they worship Baal was specifically because they needed, they thought, a rain god. Somebody who will bring the rain so that we can grow our crops. And so they tried to have, and this is a an idolistic understanding of the world, is that we've got to have different gods to cover different areas of life. And what this shows us is that the pure in heart, those who have singleness towards God, they're the ones who will truly see God, not those who multiply gods. Uh, the pure in heart will see God. And it's like God to pursue peace and not power and to have the favor of God more than the favor of the world. In other words, if you're persecuted because of him, it's better to be on God's side and be persecuted than be accepted and be, on, be God's enemy, right? Remember James uh, whoever becomes a friend of the world is what? An I- enemy of God. Or James uses the word enmity, doesn't he, in the King James? So uh, th- it's better to be on God's side uh, than on the other. And so these don't describe the way of power, but of blessing under God. Um, if you're interested in a book that kind of talks about these topics, I would encourage you to read Chuck Colson's book, uh, The Religion of Power. Nope, nope, sorry. Uh, Power Religion. There's another book by Cheryl Forbes called The Religion of Power. This is Chuck Colson's book, and he writes it with Michael Horton and J.I. Packer and several others. Power Religion. 
And he talks about different areas where the church has tried to take up power in the worldly sense, and it hasn't turned out very good. And so um, our best option here is to be gentle towards God and gentle towards others and rely upon God's power instead. And so this is just the right timing, I think, as Jesus begins to unfold this. We see a transition from an Old Testament model where uh, obedience leads to direct material blessings. The Old Covenant is a very material covenant, like the sacrifices were material and not so much spiritual. Like we're relying upon Jesus' sacrifice, which was a transaction that took place in this world, but it's not something that happens every day. It's something that happened once. But they relied upon a very material thing. They, they smelled the blood. They saw the, the, the gore that went along with that sacrifice. And it was something tangible. Uh, ours is spiritual, and I'm going to suggest to you even more real. Okay? You, under, you understand what I mean by that? That the sacrifice of Christ is even more real. We tend to think of intangible as unreal, but I, that's not really the case. Uh, sometimes... This material world can be a facade to something that God is doing, and I don't mean that in a platonic sense, if that makes sense to you. But uh, the timing of this matters because the followers of Christ are about ready to enter a world of conflict as the gospel launches out into a Gentile, into a Gentile world full of idolatry and ignorance, where people are going to do battle for their traditions just as they always do. And you know, the opposition didn't only come from Gentiles, did it? Like, if you look at the early chapters of the book of Acts, it's the, it's the Israelites, it's the Jewish people that are hunting down the Apostle Paul and trying to stop Peter and John, um, who stoned Stephen. Okay, so there's opposition from the Jewish, um, the Jewish contingency. There's opposition also from the Gentiles. We see that develop later on, and especially towards the end of the century, there's a, a definite opposition to the gospel from outside of any known scriptural knowledge of who God is. Uh, the interesting thing here is that this, uh, Matthew chapter 5 presents uh, the first time in the New Testament we hear the word disciple. Okay? Um, now, that's true in one sense and not true in another, because I don't know if you know this, but though Matthew is at the first of the New Testament, it's not the first book written in chronological order. Did you know that? Okay, if you didn't know that, it's out there. <laughs> okay, so maybe James, maybe Galatians, maybe First Thessalonians were the first of the uh, the New Testament books that are written. But in terms of describing what's happened uh, the Gospels come first. We need to know the story, and that's why it's at the first of our New Testament. Okay, so here we are uh, looking at the story of Jesus. And in Matthew's Gospel, this is the first time disciple is mentioned. Disciples were gathered uh, in the previous chapter. We see it in verse 18 of chapter 4 that Jesus starts calling disciples to himself. And uh, they come and follow him. And then in chapter 5, it tells us that he called his disciples to himself. It says explicitly his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so the way we probably should picture this is as Jesus sets, sits down on a, a mountaintop or a hilltop there along the Sea of Galilee, uh, he sits down and you have in the closest concentric circle to Jesus his group of disciples, whoever they are at that moment. His group of disciples, uh, and I don't mean there would be any surprise. I'm just saying that Jesus may not have called everybody at that point. In fact, there's a good 
um, reason to believe maybe he didn't. But then outside of that, you would have had a larger group of people, the crowd, listening in to all of this. And so Jesus uh, tells us a little bit about this. A disciple is one who learns. I don't know if I have this on the slide here, but a disciple is one who learns. But the learner is something more than somebody going into the synagogue and listening to Jesus teach. Um, it's more than that. It has to... and and. Also, in our situation, a disciple is more being coming to church on Sunday and Wednesday, right? Like learning, being a learner of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus is more than just coming to church and, and hearing the Bible talked about or taught. Uh, it, has to go, it has to go much deeper than that. A disciple is a learner. And so when it was first used, you wouldn't call somebody a disciple because they went to the synagogue and heard Jesus teach, which we don't have very many references of, but uh, most of his teaching happens not only not in the synagogue or the temple, but oftentimes in the open air. Did you know, did you know at one time in church history, there was a controversy about this, whether you could preach and teach in the open air? Did you know that? I think George, George, huh? The reason was People thought you shouldn't proclaim the gospel in open air. It needed to happen in a church. I think that's probably a leftover from Catholicism, I imagine. And so one of the critics, I think it was a critic of George Whitfield, said, you shouldn't be doing this, uh, preaching the gospel in the open air like this. Well, if I were to go back to a reference, I would just go back to Matthew chapter 5, where we see Jesus speaking in open air. George Whitfield was clever, though. I think it was him who said, I'll prefer my way of preaching the gospel any day over your way of not preaching the gospel. So <laughs> I'm doing it in the open air. You're not doing it at all. Which one's better? So uh, that, could, that could be a great argument. And he was clever in doing that. But here Jesus is speaking in the open air, and being a disciple is more than just, just going to church, I guess is the way we might, we might say it. It was more like being an apprentice. A disciple includes allegiance to a particular teacher and involves sharing life with the teacher by a group of followers. And probably a good uh, a term that we could use is apprentice or pupil. Um, they would be good words if we keep in mind that more is being learned than a trade or information. What Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching us too, is the way of life before God. As I said, it took uh, 58 seconds to read these, these 12 verses, and yet it can change our lives if we live by them. And maybe a good title for the message, although I'm not recommending this, would be how to change your life in under a minute. Read, read uh, the Beatitudes, because if we'll put those into practice, it will change our life. I'd like you to notice his place here in verse 1. He went up on a mountainside. Somewhere in the Sea of Galilee, we've talked uh, about this again and again, but it's good just to keep in mind context. I think something happens, and I'm learning uh, that memory gets greater if we associate different things. Okay, Did you know that? That if you associate different things with something, uh, it increases our capacity to remember them. And so if you remember as you come to this, if you picture a hillside somewhere or a mountainside somewhere as you come to this, it will help to aid our memory as we, we look at what's being said here. So 
I always think, and this is important, it wouldn't be in the Bible if it weren't important. You agree with that? Like, there's a lot of things that we want to know that aren't mentioned in the Bible. And what that says to me is that God saw certain things as important enough to communicate and other things as not important. Like, we would like to know something about Jesus' teenage years, wouldn't you? Like, that's such a turbulent time. What did Jesus look like as a teenager? Well, we know almost nothing about that. In fact, if you know that uh, we see him at 12, and then we don't see him again until he's around 30, where did all those years go? Well, God saw fit that we didn't need to know that stuff. I mean, he could turn to the Gnostic Gospels, but they're not reliable about those things. So what that tells us is God doesn't want us to know. So if it mentions something, we have to assume it's important. If it mentions Jesus taught on a hillside, there's a reason for that. If no more than that God wanted us to have some kind of context for that moment so that we could place it. He teaches, he teaches on a hillside somewhere in the region of Galilee, probably northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and uh, he begins to teach. He invites comparison by doing this with Moses, who went up on a mountain and received the law, and he came down and he taught the people in Exodus 34. So maybe there's a comparison here as Jesus begins to unfold a little bit of uh, a greater than Moses. Remember how Moses prophesied a greater, a greater prophet will come? They were to listen to him, okay? Jesus. I like you to know that there's lots of places in Scripture where it makes comparisons like this. A greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Elijah is here. Okay, we we need to know this is a a greater. And Jesus shows it when he says, "You've heard it said this," and then he takes he takes the law and he applies it to the heart of the matter. Like you've heard it said, "You shall not kill," but I say to you, if anyone hates their brother without a cause, they have murder in their heart. Okay, so he, he's very poignant about that. And so we're getting a reinterpretation of the law stripped of some of the rabbinical tradition that has taken it in a new direction. Okay, so Jesus is doing all of that. Um, I need to update a statement that I made in an earlier lesson, and uh, just, so, just so you know and come across this. And I'll tell you before I say this, I don't think it changes anything practically for us, but... I want you to know the full story. So I made a statement uh, probably three, four weeks ago that Matthew was there as an eyewitness to these words, okay? Um, But the call of Matthew doesn't come until chapter 9, verse 9. And so I want you to be aware of that. And so what that changes is it calls into question whether Matthew was there at the Sermon on the Mount. I think that night I waxed eloquent making a big deal about how he's hearing the words of Jesus and writing them down. Okay, I don't know that that didn't happen, but I also can't be certain. And so what's happened here is that it changes his being there from certainty to possibility. Okay, Matthew being there. Because in the call of the disciples in the previous chapter, it has the four who are fishing along the sea. And Matthew comes in chapter 9. Now, I think he could have been there, even though he's not officially introduced until Matthew chapter 9, where we hear of his original call, there's a possibility Matthew may still have been there. And I want to make a brief case for that. It's not super important. But uh, for one thing, the Gospel of Matthew is not arranged exactly chronologically, but logically around themes. Okay, did you know that? 
that, I mean, there's a certain general chronology that has to happen. Like, you can't have the introduction of his ministry following the resurrection. You've got to have a certain chronology. But he arranges things different, differently from Luke. Luke says in his introduction that I've set about to give you an orderly account. So I think Luke's is probably the most chronological of all the Gospels. John is very thematic. It's revolving around uh, the miracles, the signs. I think Matthew, he divides his up into kingdom elements. And so it's possible that Matthew puts that introduction of him into a place where he wants to deal with the idea that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And so if that's the case, and I'm not saying it's, it is or it isn't, but if that's the case, he could have already been a disciple, but he doesn't really introduce that portion until later when it's significant to his message. Okay. The other thing is, Matthew was in the area, and he, have may, he may have been there, whether he was a disciple or not, yet, by being in the crowd. He was in that very area. And so, uh, as one who is invited later, it seems reasonable that he already had been shown, he had already shown some interest in the things of Jesus. So, let me talk about what doesn't change with that. That these are Jesus' words that Matthew records. Are you with me? Whether he's there or whether he's not at that moment, these are still Jesus' words. And we have an echo of that in Luke chapter 6, these, these same words. That Matthew recorded them, we know that this doesn't change, that Matthew recorded them in his gospel, and that he was with Jesus and his disciples that would have known about it from them, and he would have known about them from him and them either way. And so, But I do want you to, when you come to Matthew 9, verse 10, go, oh, Pastor Luke said he was already there. I want you to be prepared for that. And so you can see that however you like. All right, let's talk about the posture of Jesus. Look at verse 1. What does it say about Jesus' posture? He sat down. Hey, you remember what that implies? He's the master. Authority, okay? What do do we know about um, the posture of sitting? To sit down, this is the authoritative posture of a rabbi. While the custom was to stand to read the word, a uh, respected teacher sat down to teach it. And so you, you stand to read, you sit down to teach it. <laughs> you can tell I'm not a respected teacher. I'm not sitting tonight. So by that, by that evidence. In fact, the Hebrew word for school, does anybody know? Yeshiva means seat. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 2, 24, verse 3, 26, 55, we see Jesus sitting. Matthew 23, 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Jesus says, sit in the seat of Moses. They sit in the seat of Moses. In other words, he's saying that they take Moses' authority. Luke chapter 4, verse 20 through 21, Jesus comes out of the wilderness after he's, he's gone fasting for 40 days, and he comes out in the power of the Spirit, and he goes where? Anybody remember? The synagogue, right? He goes to the synagogue, and he takes the scroll from the attendant that's there, and he opens it up, and he reads a passage. Isaiah what? Anybody know? 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. And he goes on from there, leaving off the portion that says, and to 
pronounce the, the vengeance of our God. He leaves that off because that's for another time. But uh, he proclaims freedom to the captives and sight to the blind and, and uh, so forth. And, and then it says, after he handed back the scroll to the attendant, he sat down. And the eyes of the people of the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this is the posture that Jesus takes on the mount. Notice his pronouncement. Uh, he began he began to teach them. It says, it doesn't say it in the NIV. The NIV has gone uh, out of its way to put things in English as we would speak it. If we were to look at maybe a more formal translation where they're trying to follow the exact figures of speech of the Greek or the Hebrew, it would say something like this, that he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. Okay. That sounds redundant to us, but that's a very, that's a very Jewish way of saying, uh, saying this statement. And what, what we have is that simplified expression. To open his mouth is used to introduce significant pronouncements. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of these Job, in Job uh, chapter 3 and, verse, and chapter 33, Psalm 78. Daniel chapter 10, Matthew 13, Acts 8, 35, Acts 10, 34. All of these have the expression, he opened his mouth and then he began to speak. Not of Jesus, but of different people. Daniel, um, Peter, and one of these, and also Jesus. To teach here means to give instruction. And uh, when it says he began to teach them, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, how far does that go in Matthew? How far does that verb carry? Yes, that's exactly what I'm asking. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. He, set, he, began to, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. And so all of this is following within that context until it comes to chapter 7 where people are amazed that he taught with authority, not like their scribes and teachers. <laughs> that probably made everybody mad, didn't it? So he, he taught. Um, and this teaching is everything from announcing the good life to giving straightforward commands. And I think it's important um, that we understand that not everything in Scripture is a command. Do you know that? I'm going to hear thankful for that, that we're not memorizing thousands and thousands of rules. What else do we have to say? What is a, what is a command? How would you define it? Something to do or not do? Okay. Something you have to do or better not do? Okay. What else? Let's just uh, wrap this up, put some flesh on what a command is. Direct order. I was thinking order. It's a good description of it. What's that? Requirement? Okay, good. All right. What else do we have in Scripture beside commands? What is it? Beseech? Okay. Maybe an appeal? Yeah. So maybe not a command, but an urging? Okay, not everything's in. They have, uh, in Greek, I don't know how they do this in Hebrew, but I know in Greek they have... A, a particular way of spelling verbs that tells you if it's a command or not. Some things are indicative, which means it's describing. 
some things are imperative, which means it's command, which means the verb is commanding. And not all the verbs are commanding verbs. In fact, there's other categories besides that. What else do we have besides um, encouragements or in, um, what is it? Promises. Okay, good. Anything else? I'm thinking of a book that relates. It's right around Psalms. Proverbs. Proverbs, are they commands? They're not even, they're not universals because you'll find in Proverbs that there are some Proverbs that contradict each other. And the reason for that is because they have to be applied in specific settings. And they're not commands, they're wisdom. Okay, and then you have, you have worship. So what, what I, why I'm saying this is because when I was first saved, I wanted everything to be a command because I just wanted to know how to please God. Anybody relate to that? Like, I want it all to be, tell me exactly what to do. But what I found in Christ is there's, there are commands, there are rules, but there's also a lot of liberty that God gives us to live the good life by wisdom. You know, when you're a kid, um, especially when you grow up in the church, you want to know the line. Where's the line? Okay, can you relate to this? Like, this is the line. You can go as close to the line, just don't cross it. Okay. That's what we wanted to know. Where Where is sin? Tell me where sin is, and I'm going to go right up to that, but not go over. But is that wise? It's not wise. Wisdom teaches us um, a better way. And so we ask questions. Well, this is a proclamation. This is a description. And some, we haven't mentioned all the categories. There are stories that are stories that give us wisdom. They don't exactly tell us the point, but... Um, a lot of the stories in the Old Testament, the reason they're given is they're given, and Paul makes this plain, I think, First Corinthians 10, they're given for our edification uh, so that we understand how to live. Truth is communicated, especially in the Eastern world, through stories. Okay? We, we tend to uh, kind of shy away from that because we don't always know what point we're supposed to draw. But if you were to live in that culture in that time, you would know this is what that story is trying to say. It has a point to it. And so I wanted to make that point because as Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount, he does give some rules. He does make some commands in here. But he also gives some general wisdom. He proclaims some things. He describes the good life. He pronounces blessing as he describes the kind of life that God favors under the present circumstances. And so when we come to Beatitudes, Beatitudes are not commands. They're not straightforward commands. When we, when we read verses 3 through 12 here, these are not commands. He's not commanding you to be like that. He's describing for us the blessed life, and it's an invitation. Jesus is much more nuanced than just do this, don't do that. He wants us to serve him, not just out of a, a sense of duty, but out of taking our very best and offering it to him. Are you with me? So he describes the good life, and, and certainly we want to live there. So I, I'd like you to notice some things about these, and I do have some slides for this. Let's see. Maybe I do. Okay, yes. Notice uh, these are characteristics of the blessed and not rules. Okay, rules would say uh, do or do not. And we love... We love, I think, most people love to make rules out of everything. And I, for one, looked for rules here. Um, 
And rules can be good, but not everything's a rule. Jesus is more subtle. He calls people to the good life in the kingdom, not with rules, but by describing it. And hopefully in describing it, it will call us to want to live there. And so the invitation is to the happiness that follows and the choice is up to the listener. And so all of these are compelling, even though at first glance it wouldn't seem to be the case. The whole of the Sermon on the Mount wowed people with his authority, but he wasn't always using that authority to give rules. The second thing is this, is that I'd like you to notice that these are encouragements to those committed to the king and to the kingdom. Their well-being isn't from the world, uh, whoever these describe, and I'm saying that in a way that I hope you're getting. It's talking about us, should be, that our well-being is not um, dependent upon the world. It's not from the world. It's not with the world. Jesus is calling for characteristics that go against conventional wisdom. Um, He says, the meek shall inherit the earth, the gentle will inherit the earth. Conventional wisdom says that it's not the meek that inherit the earth, but the powerful. Are you with me? Do you see how this kind of is flipping things on its head? And this is just the kind of thing which marks someone in the kingdom is that they're meek. And then the third thing that we ought to notice is that these are to be taken together. Okay, so in other words, uh, it's not one person is like a peacemaker and another person is meek or uh, a mourner. This is to be taken all together. This is descriptive together of the life that is blessed. So these are the patterns for life lived in the kingdom of God. Some people do this with the fruit of the Spirit. It's like, you know what I really need to work on is this fruit. And we sometimes maybe even say, well, that's my fruit. Don't say that. Because you know when it says uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the word fruit there is in singular, which means that you get one fruit, they're all together. Are, Are you following that? That even though it describes the different kinds of fruit, they come collectively together with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we don't just get to say, Lord, develop me in patience. Yes, do that. But you know that we can't do that at the exclusion of gentleness. God wants to develop the the fruit of the Spirit, right? Okay, so we sometimes can do this with this, like I really need to focus upon this or that. These characteristics, yes, we need to maybe have some special emphasis in terms of uh, maybe um, trusting God or mourning for our sins. We haven't we haven't fought through all of that. We haven't done it the way that we should. But these are to be taken all together. We don't get to be selective with this. The characteristic of the the blessed life is one is singular. Uh, this is a pattern. Uh, I used to used to go. My mom used to drag me to a place called Cloth World. I know I've talked about Cloth World. But when I was a little boy, it was at this certain area in town, and the only redeeming quality of that whole store, after you got past about, you know, the different colors and the different textures that were with the fabric, that occupies a boy for 10 seconds. That an escalator, and I like to go up the down escalator. But uh, she would go to Cloth World, which has been bought out by Joanne Fabrics, if you're interested <laughs> We would go there to buy patterns. Anybody know what patterns are? Okay, so some may not know, but 
as far as I can tell, they were really thin pieces of paper in this package that if we unfolded them, they were the shape of parts of the cloth that you needed to sew together to make an outfit. I can't remember my mom ever making anything from those patterns that we spent hours looking for at Cloth World, but the pattern was what the clothes were supposed to eventually look like. Are you with me? And so when we hear the Beatitudes, we're seeing a pattern of what the blessed life should look like, what he's calling us to. And so there's this statement, there's characteristics, and then there's a justification. You're blessed, blessed are those who do this, and then because of this. Say, uh, blessed are those who mourn, and the reason that they're blessed is that in the end, God's going to comfort them. Okay, so R.T. France says this about the uh, the Beatitudes, the sharply paradoxical character of most of the recommendations reverses the conventional values of society. It, can, it commends those whom the world in general would dismiss as losers and wimps. Beatitudes call those who would be God's people to stand out as different from those around them and promises them that those who do so will not ultimately be the losers. Yeah, you might think if I do things meekly and I don't take up my my power my power stance and and demand my way that I'm going to get left behind but I think the beatitudes say the opposite is that if we're really trusting God and and, and I don't mean that there aren't times that we take tough stands I'm saying that when it comes to the blessed life it flips the idea that power is the winner on his head and that we we win, we overcome by trusting the overcomer. He says we're blessed. Notice uh, there the beatitude is blessed. What is a beatitude? It's a state of bliss, perfect happiness. The word blessed refers here to having God's favor and therefore the promise of well-being. These beatitudes make room for present trouble while encouraging us with God's favor and the eventual reversal of our circumstances. Take, for example, those who mourn will be comforted. Okay, blessed, uh, the Greek word, makarios, pertaining to being especially favored, blessed, fortunate, happy, privileged. And I'll talk about happiness in just a moment as related to that. But this is this is the word uh, for us. F.W. Borum wrote... Um, Christ does not begin his sermon on the mount as the law was delivered on the mount with commands and threatenings and trumpet soundings, the fire flaming, the earthquaking, the hearts of the Israelites to fear. But our Savior begins with promises and blessings. He wants to invite us to his kingdom. He doesn't want to scare us to his kingdom. Can I, can I say something about fear? That fear and Enticement can actually be two sides of the same coin. Uh, there is a place for that. I think it was uh, is it Ray Comfort that uh, goes out on the street. And he he says his motto is "Law to the proud and grace to the humble." And so when people are proud, he presents the law to them, and hopefully the law will break down their pride. And then when they turn and they're they're softening up, he extends a grace and says, "But Jesus invited you in." I don't know if you've seen this happen, but uh, David Wilkerson would preach like that. He'd start out super harsh, 
I don't know if you'd listen to him. He'd start out super hard, and by the end, he was in tears pleading with people to accept the grace of God. It was a beautiful thing. Every sermon was just about the same. didn't matter what the topic was. It seemed to kind of end in the same kind of place. Law to the proud and grace to the humble. And for me, uh, some say you should never use fear. For me, fear made me seriously consider my walk with God. When I was 17, I was at a conference with my brother, and I felt the Lord saying to me there, the preaching at how, I don't know if you remember, any of you remember the group Petra from the 80s, the rock, Christian rock group, but one of their lead singers, John Slit, was the speaker, and he, uh, he um, was preaching and encouraging us to come to Christ. I don't remember what the topic of the message was, but I remember hearing the voice of the Spirit in my heart saying, Luke, if I came tonight... If I returned tonight, you wouldn't be ready. And that terrified me. And I went to the altar that night and gave my heart to Christ. I knew it before, but I'd never felt it pronounced in my heart just that way. So fear kind of directed me there, but it's love that's kept me here. Do you, you see? There's, you, can't, you can't remain by fear. At some point, you have to come to a place where you're loving God. It's not enough just to walk in fear of him. Fear may be the beginning, but love is what keeps us in communion with God. And so we need, we need both of those. But I think it's beautiful here that Jesus does start out with blessing. But there are, in the Sermon on the Mount, threatenings. Do you know that? In danger of hell's fire. I mean, he talks, he talks straight with people. All right, so pertaining to being happy, this blessing is pertaining to being happy. Uh, with the implication of enjoying favorable circumstances pertaining especially to favored, blessed, fortunate, happy, privileged. Some translations say, instead of blessed, how blissful are each of these categories. True happiness lies in the spiritual prosperity uh, um, dwells in these. And he he mentions those things. And, and I think it's hard... Um, because the, we live in fallen circumstances, I think it's hard to make the case that everything which happens to us is God's expressed will. Sometimes I hear people say, if it, if it happens, it was meant to happen. That's not really a Christian statement. Okay, Sometimes things happen which are not God's will. I don't believe everything which happens is God's will. Otherwise, it makes some passage in the Bible confusing. God commanded Cain to master his sinful inclination and leave Abel alone. Remember what he said? Sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. All right? Remember that? And what was God saying to him? Your heart is wrong, and I know where it's going. You better get under control. And what did Cain do? It seems that he ignores all the warnings, and he goes and he kills his brother anyway. You see, the inclination was to leave Abel alone, but Cain killed Abel. And so why would God call it wrong and warn against it if it's really what God wanted? So we have Cain acting against the will of God here, and Abel is a victim of rebellion. And so we have to be careful about saying it happened because it was supposed to happen. Not everything that happens is supposed to happen in God's will. And that's not to say he doesn't know what will happen ahead of time. Are you with me? There's a difference between God knowing and God desiring it. Those two are different things. And so we live then in a corrupted world where God has been turned out of his vineyard. And it's been 
seized by rebellious stewards. So not all that happens is as it's supposed to be. But thankfully, there's more to life than our present circumstances, and that's why I think Jesus, in talking about the blessed life, has to bring up some of the harsh realities of living for God in a fallen world, because there's more to life than present circumstances for those being blessed by God. All who are blessed possess well-being, even if it's hidden for a moment by troubling times. And also, there's God-given grace for bearing up. Do you know that? That in addition to the fact that Jesus has said that we're blessed here, there's God-given grace for bearing up under these circumstances. And our future can't be shaken or taken from those who are citizens of the kingdom. Thank God for that. Makarios, this, uh, this word right here, can reclassify negatives as positive if they can be used in the service of God. And it's not because evil is made innocuous, um, but because God's goodness can overcome sin's badness. Uh, think of the cross for a moment. The cross we should view simultaneously as wicked and gruesome. Do you agree? And the greatest blessing that ever happened. How can we see it that way? How can we see something as brutally gruesome and horribly unjust and still at the same time see it as the greatest blessing? It's because God's goodness overcame man's wickedness in that moment. He's able to do that. I think we of all people can take the view that sin is really, really bad, and yet we can still have hope in Goodness. I don't think Christians can be either completely optimistic or completely pessimistic. I think we occupy both camps. We're pessimistic towards humanity. We're op- optimistic towards God. Simultaneously. We're the, I think this allows us to be the only really sane thinkers in the world. Dare I say that? <laughs> when you can see all of humanity's wickedness and still have hope. Why? It's because God is good. And so all of these things that are mentioned here, especially as you come down to the end, when it talks about those who are persecuted because of righteousness, we can still have hope in a world that persecutes the righteous. We can still understand that there's blessing. But how many of us live like this? Do we think about life in this way? In Acts twenty. 6 verse 2, Paul, who himself, he considers himself blessed to be standing before Agrippa after two years of being held in prison. I think I would have gone crazy waiting two years like that, uncertain about what came next. But he found uh, the perspective of being blessed even still. How about Philippians chapter 1? I thank God because, I'm paraphrasing here, My chains have served to advance the gospel. How can he do that? Well, he's, what's that? He said, my chains, my chains that I have, have served to advance the gospel. And he even says there are those that want to, they want to add, um, and I can't think of the word now, but they want to add, they want to add difficulty to my bonds. Uh, some preach Christ out of contention, some out of rivalries. Um, nevertheless, he says, I rejoice because Christ is preached. And so he's locked up, but he still sees the advance of the gospel. And I think um, 
It's one of the reasons why he can sing when he's been beaten and is in prison at midnight. He still can have joy for a song because he understands that he's blessed. And that's true of all of us. If we stand in um, allegiance to Christ, that whatever is coming in this life, whatever has come in this life, we still have good to come. Our best day is still ahead of us. You've had some pretty good days in life, I imagine, and probably you've had some pretty bad days, but our best day is still ahead. And in fact, I think C.S. Lewis talks about this. I think it's in, it's either in The Weight of Glory or The Great Divorce, but he talks about how heaven's joys will work backwards. And I'd like you to think about this for a moment, that when we get to heaven, maybe you've known this. Maybe you've known this in circumstance of life where something you found out spoiled some of the good that happened before. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you had some things in life that were really good, and then something you found out spoiled that good. But imagine that going the other way, that something that you experience in the future will somehow ease or bring joy or bring meaning to all the bad that's happened prior to this moment. When we stand in heaven, heaven's joys will work backwards through all of our life so that we'll see all of it in the light of the glory of heaven. And that'll that'll change us. I wish I could communicate it better than that. C.S. Lewis says it best. But I think it's true. The blessings of heaven will work into, in our memory, the good that we now know, or will know. Excuse me. It's interesting you should use the word blessed. He could have chosen words like rich or praised. Praised are you when these things are true of you, or you're rich when these things happen. But instead, he used the word that suggests under God's favor and therefore having well-being. And the word seemed to contain a congratulatory element As uh, noted in Weymouth's New Testament, people who are blessed may outwardly be much to be pitied, but from the higher and therefore truer standpoint, they are to be envied, congratulated, and imitated. And I think that's true of all of us, is that we can can have that. I want to come to R.T. France's statement here. We already talked about that one. No, I don't see France. We'll say Blomberg for the, a minute. He says, Makarios does not state that a person feels happy. Okay, When it says, blessed are you, or some translation, I think the NIV of 84 says, happy are you. Um, but they are in a happy situation, one which other people ought also to wish to have. Fortunate gets closer to the sense, but it's inappropriate because of a connotation of luck. We're not lucky. Okay, you understand that? When you're blessed, it's not that you're lucky. Congratulations might convey much more the impact of this word for blessed. Our well-being doesn't rest on people. This is why Jesus says those who live like this are blessed despite their circumstances. I paraphrased our um, Beatitudes like this. The normal pattern is eternal state, blessed, then a character is described and then or condition and then an explanation of why they're blessed. And here I want to, just for emphasis sake, reverse it. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. They are blessed. There will be comfort for those who mourn. They are blessed. The earth will be inherited by the gentle. They are blessed. They will have their fill, those who desire God's righteousness, like food and drink. They are blessed. 
Those who receive mercy will be the merciful. They are blessed. The ones who seek God are the pure in heart. They are blessed. Those who will be called children of God are the peacemakers. They are blessed. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They are blessed. The reward in heaven is great for those who are reviled and persecuted and ill-spoken of falsely because of me. How like the prophets before you to be treated that way, you are blessed. So Jesus here has given us a portrait of a kind of person, and we're supposed to want to be that person. Now, in conclusion here, this is Blumberg's statement. The effect of the Beatitudes is a complete inversion of the attitude popularly known in our culture as machismo. This attitude is not limited to a particular culture, but characterizes humanity's self-centeredness, self-centeredness, self-arrogating pride, which invariably seeks personal security and survival above the good of others. We are unable to invert these natural worldly values only when we recognize that God will in turn invert our marginal status and grant eternal compensation. This is not to promote works righteousness. Jesus is addressing those already professing discipleship. But like James, among the epistles, Matthew is the one gospel to emphasize most the changed life that must flow from commitment to Christ. And so he calls us to be blessed. All right. Well, that concludes our study of the Beatitudes. I hope you're blessed. Amen. Let's stand. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight that our circumstances don't determine whether we're blessed or not, but you do in our relationship to you. And you've called your people blessed if we aren't standing in our own righteousness, if we're seeking you, if we're mourning over our sins and longing to be forgiven. We're blessed in that. If we're seeking to make peace and live at peace, you bless that life. For merciful, you bless that life. For being persecuted for your sake, you bless that life. And so I pray, God, you help us to stand up and take our uh, position in allegiance to you as true disciples, not just not just hearers of the word, not just intellectual learners, but apprentices in the kind of life that you desire. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.